0: Hi,
1: I'm Alex Garcia, and thanks for joining us here at NTWC Live. It is a team effort between Bill Reed, Tim Smith, and I. We'd like to say thank you to a few groups that helped make this possible. It's USAA, South Padre Island Convention and Tourist Bureau, The Weather Company, and The Weather Boy. And now, here's Tim Smith.
2: Thank you, Alex, and good morning, everybody. Welcome back to NTWC Live. We are uh, well ahead of the hurricane season, but we've got a lot going on. This is going to be an exciting show today. We're so excited to have everybody here. We've got a long list of people that are on this call today uh, because we're going to talk about what we're going to be doing here in just a couple of weeks on South Padre Island at the 2023 National Tropical Weather Conference. It's been a pretty quiet off-season, fortunately, the way we like to have it. But um, normally at this time in the show, we go to Bill Reed for an update on the tropics. But Bill, there's nothing going on. If Course, but how was your off season, Bill? Bill Reed, and you're muted. You muted. That's <laughs> perfect way to start. That's where we, that's where we have to start,
3: Bill.
4: <laughs> it doesn't matter. If, uh, middle of July and August, I'll still be forgetting to unmute it. <laughs> but, um, well, good off season. Uh, actually, I've been uh, with the demise of Billani. I've been looking at the at the, uh, the historical aspects of uh, of Gulf storms. Uh, in a a neutral and and an El Niño year, if we go straight in the, and so far I've only looked at the Texas aspect of it, and it's kind of a surprise to me is that the the neutral years are by far the most uh, uh, prolific as far as impact in the Texas coast. I'll probably look at the rest of the Gulf before we get down to the to the conference so I can needle Phil about why neutral is so potent in our Gulf of Mexico thing but El Nino in Texas the the only significant hurricane and since 1950 in the database was Audrey you know Audrey was really a Louisiana hurricane but it did do some damage in far southeast uh, Texas but uh, people in Texas should be rooting for El Nino at least from the hurricane perspective So you, you haven't really
2: taken the winter off. You've been doing some doing some science.
4: I'm a weather nerd. I mean, I, it's a hobby now though. So I'm I'm never looking at this stuff after nine in the evening. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's good. And I, and back in the working days, I was up at like five cleaning out all the email so I could go to work and actually do something meaningful. Now, now I get up at five because the damn dogs are barking. <laughs> <laughs> drink coffee, read the news, and play cards with the wife, and before 9 o'clock, before New York, it's 9 o'clock, and it's time to do something productive.
2: Well, there you go. Here we are, 10 o'clock in the morning, Central Time, and we have a whole bunch of people on this call today, Bill. A lot of people I'm anxious to hear from, not only today, but, uh, of course, coming up at the conference, which begins in just a couple of weeks on South Padre Island, uh, at the Marriott Courtyard Hotel, and uh, as always, I want to thank folks like USAA and South Padre Island for making this thing possible. Without them, we couldn't do this. And we welcome back Plylocks; they're back with us once again this year. Then um, the Port of Brownsville. For those who are coming down, there's a tour of the Port of Brownsville during the conference. But of course, the meat of the conference is all the meetings, and um, we've got some. Tremendous presentations this year. I think, you know, yeah, we're going to have fun, but we're also going to learn a lot. And, um, you know, today with us, we're going to have Josh Morgan, Matt Devitt, Heather Holbeck, uh, Julie Watchman, Brian McNulty, Derek Herndon, Alan Seals, Austin Anderson, all with us today. So, so Bill, let's get to it. Who, who should we start with? Who was the first one on this morning? Um,
4: let's Heather, go. T- huh? right? Heather What's
2: that? Didn't Heather jump on first? Uh-huh. Heather was first here. So, Heather Holbeck, good morning. How are you?
5: Good morning, I'm doing great. How
2: about you? Doing terrific. Heather, piloting uh, into uh, some of the storms last year. Talk to us about what you're going to talk to us about uh, at the conference in a couple of weeks.
5: Yeah, so I work um, with the NOAA Hurricane Hunters as one of the research scientists on board the plane. So um, I had the opportunity to fly into Hurricane Ian last year. Um, So I'll give, you know, some overviews of all of our flights into IAN and uh, some of the interesting things we observed and learned and uh, also maybe uh, talk about some of the small UAS that we deployed in IAN.
2: Give us a hint. You know, what was something there that was just, what what was something about IAN that you just came out going, wow, that that was unique and special?
5: I think the way that it, so rapidly started an eye wall replacement cycle after coming off of Cuba, and then, you know, obviously we all know overnight after that, it intensified so quickly, and then the next morning, um, it was a beast, and they had some uh, pretty crazy flights through it that next morning.
4: And Bill, jump in on
2: this anytime. We're just kind of going back and forth to, to open this up a little bit.
5: Yeah, that... Uh,
4: uh... Uh, if Heather, correct me if I'm wrong, but you, uh, uh, you work out of uh, Tallahassee, is that correct? That
5: is correct. I am uh, actually employed by Florida State University. Okay, that's an interesting how's How
4: does that uh, work as far as the, the working arrangement with the NOAA flying in the research mode? Are you, are you a, a visiting scientist with them or are you employed by both?
5: So I'm considered a NOAA Cooperative Institute employee. So it's essentially a university contractor is the way that it's easiest to understand. Um, So I am very much integrated into the NOAA team at the Atlantic Oceanographic and Meteorological Laboratory in their Hurricane Research Division. And so we're the scientists that staff the plane. We process drop sondes, make sure that all the radar data is getting off the plane correctly, and... Um, All of our science objectives are being completed. So the benefit for me is our planes are in Lakeland, Florida, so that's about halfway between here and where the lab is in Miami. So it doesn't take me any longer to get to the planes than it does for everybody else.
4: That's that's great. Uh, What what is your uh, do you have a specific area of interest that you're focused on in your research?
5: Yeah, I focus on uh, remote sensing of surface winds. So. I am the expert on the step frequency microwave radiometer for NOAA and HRD. Um, so, one of the main projects I've been working on over the last few years is trying to understand uh, how the SMR is actually performing in those really strong storms and if we need to update anything with it.
4: That's an interesting challenge because I've always wondered if. Uh, exactly, how do you know what the ground truth wind really is? <laughs> well, no. It's, it? it's definitely a challenge. Uh, uh, 50 years ago, when I was doing that, uh, we flew below the clouds in the Navy, and, and it was a visual estimate of the sea state. I uh, give you plus or minus 20 knots in my estimates. I don't think I was that good at Yeah, the
5: exciting thing is we actually have a, a new experimental instrument that's um, giving us additional uh, wind estimates about thirty meet, uh, down to about 30 meters above the surface. So um, I, that's really giving us some neat insight into the whole vertical structure almost down to the surface. So when we compare that with the SMR, we're learning a lot.
4: I forgot the name of them. The, the, uh, the, the uh, uh, unmanned... Uh uh, 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 vessels, if you will, that are in the ocean, do they measure wind accurately or are they too much in the turbulence layer?
5: You know, I think that's still a question we have with the sail drones. Um, they've given us some pretty high wind observations, but uh, one of the things we've been doing is trying to release drop songs near them to try and help with that wind speed validation near the surface.
4: Cool. Uh Tim, you got any? Yeah. Uh, uh, no, listen,
2: we've got so many people on the screen. I want to keep moving. Then we'll come back. And if you, if you can stay, Heather, do. If you got to go, go. That's okay. We appreciate it because we've got a lot of people we want to talk to today. Um, let's, I think Matt was next in line. Matt came on. Matt Devitt in uh, Wink in, in, uh, in Florida. Matt, you had an experience last year. Let's, let's talk a little bit about what, what you went through. And, and don't give away your presentation completely, but give us an idea uh, what you're going to be sharing with us uh, in a couple of weeks. Yeah, that was uh, quite a storm, and uh, the
6: five years before, went through Irma, and hands down, this was a more, at least for Southwest Florida, impactful storm, memorable storm, and one that we haven't seen to that caliber on record in terms of storm surge locally here in Southwest Florida. It also was our wettest tropical system on record, 27 inches for Grove City, and The worst part about it, it also was our deadliest storm in the state of Florida since 1935. And what I'm going to be talking about is the before, the during, and the after, and why the death toll was so high. And in terms of our communication, what can we do better potentially in the future? There are, you know even one loss of life is one too many. And the death toll as high as it was is completely unacceptable. You know, and there were way too many people that stayed along the coastline as storm surge upwards of 13, 14. And I'm curious to see the official report on and within the next few weeks how high they actually put it. We had, a, we had a storm in southwest Florida in 1873. It brought a storm tide of 14 feet to Panayasa, and it very likely with Ian, we were even higher than that, and that's why the destruction was so significant. And so, what I'm going to be talking about during the presentation is all of the elements that contributed to why this storm was so deadly and why it was so significant. And so, that's really the the meat and potatoes of the presentation. I also had a lot of a lot of things going on uh, behind the scenes as well. Uh, we had, and you know, for others that are in the business and and uh, and broadcasting, um, I had advised Wink that we were in a storm surge zone, and that we would likely be inundated by storm surge. And I think this was a common sentiment with others in the area. They said, "Oh, we've never we've never had storm surge to that level, and and you know, we'll we'll take our chances." Well, I think a lot of people they. I, I think they wish they could have done things differently. And I and I know with, with Wink, we, we unfortunately were inundated by storm surge. The good news is going forward, uh, we will be moving inland. We are moving our entire station inland to the point where storm surge will never be a factor again. So there is some good that will be coming from Ian, but uh, it was a case where uh, Wink was advised. Uh, I told them that storm surge was going to be a dynamic, it was going to be an issue, and that the building would flood. And, again, I, I think it was a common sentiment that, you know, southwest Florida, a lot of the coastal residents have have not seen storm surge like this. And, you know, if I had a dollar for every single time I've heard this where, you know, oh, it was going to go to Tampa, when in reality, Lee County never left the cone. The threat never left Lee County. And, and unfortunately, for many um we found out what happened later so that's essentially what i'm going to be talking about is the preparation before the forecast before what happened during the storm and then you know i just yesterday on my way home from work and and to work as well we still have hundreds thousands with blue tarps on their roofs from this hurricane so the cleanup is time that's awesome uh the
4: uh if uh, you, you heard a figure yet on, on an estimate of what percentage of the people in the mandatory evacuation zones actually left?
6: I do not. I do not. I will tell you that Hertz Arena, one of our biggest facilities, I mean, it wasn't even close to capacity of, of coastal residents that, you know, all they needed to go was 20 miles east and inland and to get away from the water and the fact that Hertz Arena, one of our largest storm shelters in Southwest Florida, was not even near capacity. It's, it's discouraging. And, and, you know, I, I know in the future now, and I've heard this from countless viewers that, you know, even if something remotely spins or, or even threatens Southwest Florida, then they're not going to take a chance anymore. The problem is it's, you know, it's a little too late. And at least now going forward, a lot of lessons have been learned and, and they're not going to take a chance ever again.
4: One would hope that, but uh, just for a point of reference, it's been coming up on six years since Harvey. Uh, people that were flooded in Harvey uh, that didn't have flood insurance, they've rebuilt just like they were before, bought their flood insurance, they're now dropping it. How about that? The memory softens five years down the road. It's even less in some cases, and we're getting a lot of fight and pushback about uh, the... the uh county uh, harris county and the city of houston upping their uh, base elevation for development to the 500 year event and the developers are chipping away fighting tooth and nail to get that removed be uh, really surprised if you see that down the road
6: What well, was also pretty significant and uh, i know we have so many talkers i'll keep it short and sweet here um the significance in the damage range between let's say the older homes 1960s 1970s and then fast forwarding to now I literally you know call it bad luck but I built my home uh, this past summer in a community called Babcock Ranch in <laughs> southeastern Charlotte County and it was absolutely remarkable. I actually got hit with the eastern eye wall and I would I would gauge our wind gusts uh, about hundred to 120 and my community never lost power. We have our own water um, network. We had clean water, and so what actually happened was the rest of my weather team—they did not have power. They did not have clean water. I have—I have a, uh, a seven-person weather team. We actually had five of the members stay at my house for two weeks, and and you know we we had to shack up. It was we got to know each other a lot better. But, but you do what you got to do, and, and it was, uh, you know, and we also were broadcasting at a remote site after the storm took out our main building, and it was thankfully right across the street. So, but you do what you got to do, and, and you look after your team, and in many ways they're our family, and, and that's what we did, and that's just one of the many topics that um, I'm going to talk about during the presentation.
2: Great job, Matt. We look forward to hearing what you have to say, and we look forward to welcoming you to South Texas once again. So that's going to be good. I, I'm excited about all these presentations. One of our longtime guests, who I think was next on the call, so we'll go there, uh, Austin Anderson. Austin, um, you're playing a big role in the conference again this year, including our stu- student conference on, on Wednesday, doing a presentation there. But I got you know, to tell a story, and I hope you don't mind that I tell this story. I think it was our second conference that we were um at the hilton on the I on south Boundary island and you just kind of wandered in and and you were talking and we're like who is this guy you know and, and and we found out that that you did a little shooting just a little bit <laughs> a lot of shooting and so we welcomed you and you did some shooting for us and then the next day you were back and we said well where did you stay and you say, well, on the beach, I slept on the beach. What else? They, no, no, we'll get your room. We'll get your room. Uh, <laughs> but we're so glad that, that you've been part of the program ever since and playing a big role in the National Tropical Weather Conference. So good morning, Austin. And what, what are you going to share with us uh, when you get down here? We'll get your room this time.
7: Oh, thank you, Tim. I'm so excited about this year coming up and presenting. I have some ideas, especially for the students, about how to be a network cameraman and cover weather. Uh, safely. And so I'm going to be talking about uh, the first day to the students about my career and how it's happened that I wound up covering more weather events than most. And then uh, I've got a presentation coming up on Friday where uh, a lot of uh, talk will be about how to survive a hurricane and do it safely with your camera gear. And the techniques I've learned over thirty years of doing this, and then um, um, you know, listening to your report about Harvey, I was in Harvey uh, working for the Weather Channel, and uh, KHOU flooded. I remember, in addition to Wheat, y'all remember that from Harvey, and uh, and I was in uh, working for the Weather Channel in uh, Ian in Florida, and it was interesting how the whole storm had uh, rapidly intensified and we were starting out in Tampa. And the meteorologist I was working with that morning going live uh, from Tampa in the harbor, uh, Stephanie Abrams, she says, hey, this storm is making a right turn. We got to get go south. And uh, that was a big scramble. So I'm going to talk about that in my presentation about how when uh, you see you have to move, uh, TO GET CLOSER TO THE STORM uh, LANDFALL, THAT YOU HAVE TO DO IT FAST AND EFFICIENTLY AND SAFELY. AND THERE WERE ALL, It's I, I THINK A LOT OF PEOPLE HAVE DONE THIS, uh, In I THINK, JOSH, YOU'VE DONE THIS TOO, WHERE YOU uh, ARE DRIVING INTO AN AREA THAT'S uh, backed up with evacuees on one side of the highway and nobody on the other side, but that's you're going straight in there. And it uh, and that's what we were doing over the causeway there in St. Pete and getting down to Fort Myers. But we didn't uh, get all the way into Fort Myers because there wasn't a place to stay. You have to figure out a safe place, and it's hard to scout that. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, what we wound up doing in Eden How we were there for four, maybe five days, uh, even after we lost power, in a house that was rented for us by the Weather Channel. And all of us working together, four of us, two meteorologists, a producer, and myself, the cameraman. And um, how we prepared for that, uh, too, because uh, losing power and food and no way to get around, but we're still having to work and cover the aftermath, for example. So I'm gonna talk a little bit about how you do that and uh, how you keep your camera gear dry. That's so important to know how to do because uh, there was a storm, well, probably 12 years ago in Bermuda and uh, another cameraman came in from Florida and I was working with Jim Cantore and uh, he had just bought a uh, brand new DSLR to shoot the storm with, and he had heard from Canon and all the reps that it was uh, waterproof, but not in a hurricane. He didn't realize that it wasn't going to survive. So his whole camera went down within the next, like the first ten minutes of being out in the weather like that. So, so I was having to. Uh, give him video just uh, because he was going to get in trouble for not having... I also carry a backup camera, by the way, on that end. uh, But I'm looking forward to this year's conference and seeing everybody in person again.
2: So. I, I think you know this room that we're in today is a lot like what our hospitality suites like at the end of each day where everybody's here together and just sharing stories uh, you know there might be a drink involved uh, you know if, if, at least with a few people i don't know who but sure. but, but it's just a chance to share stories and, and austin you've been so great about sharing so many of your stories you find yourself in any
7: precarious situations last season absolutely you know uh the uh it seems like Uh, from we're getting into severe spring season and I'm already have been uh, up in the uh, Oklahoma um, tornado alley and uh, covering those storms and even and it started early this year in January where we were in Idabel and it was hit hard Uh, just a couple of weeks ago it was in Cheyenne Oklahoma where they were hit by a tornado and and it's interesting that uh, you know my history about being picked up by an EF-5, which, uh, the a tornado, that uh, uh, since that has happened, um, we don't go out and chase storms anymore. We get a storm chaser video, and then we go in and do the aftermath. Uh, that seems to be a lot safer. Uh, because you think about, you do a news package uh, for covering uh, the, a storm, you use maybe 10, 15 seconds at the start of your story about this is the tornado, this is what hit. And you use um, like user-generated content. It's like somebody's a storm chaser's cell phone or or a dash cam. The rest of the story for maybe two more minutes is what happened to the people that were hit by this storm. And so that has been a change over time uh, for that.
2: I'm, I'm sure that uh, your lovely wife is happy that that's been change <laughs> in your, your life as well.
7: <laughs> she is looking forward to attending this year, and uh, we're looking forward to being there and visiting with everybody. And uh, she just retired, so now she has lots of time. To well, we work. might put her to work. She could. <laughs> I remember one year you did put her to work as a producer coordinating live shots. Mm. She used and- to be a reporter. So, yeah. Well, we'll find, we'll find something for it to do.
2: If nothing else, just have lunch with us. That'll be good. We'll, we'll oh, that'll something. be great, Jim. Yeah. We, we, we appreciate it, Austin. Thanks for all you do. And, again, uh, stick around if you'd like. That's great. You mentioned uh, Harvey, and uh, when when you mentioned Harvey, I saw Brooks' hand go up and go, oh, my God. Yeah, I remember that. So let's go down to Brooks now, Brooks Garner. Uh, not in Houston yeah. anymore, but still covering hurricanes. And I think you get the award for the best shirt of the day. Good morning, Brooks.
8: <laughs> Going old school. Love That's it. Right. I love it. One of the first conferences. Well, hey guys, uh, yeah, I'm very excited to come this year. Um, I'm in Orlando now, and and it's good to see all of you. I can't wait to see you in person. Of course, Bill and Judy and uh, a few others have have experienced the fun of Harvey, and and Ian was very much like that as far as a a redo. It almost felt like Harvey was a dress rehearsal for Ian as far as the impacts went in Orlando. So my presentation is going to kind of complement Matt Devitt's presentation as far as, instead of talking about the landfall and the most acute impacts of, of the hurricane itself, uh, more of its inland impacts. And one of the biggest things revealed was that the uh, Saffir-Simpson scales, in, well, I guess you could say the uh, the things it doesn't cover were revealed uh, a lot of folks here in the Orlando area. And on our coastline, we cover from roughly Flagler Beach up in Flagler County down to like the Melbourne area in Brevard County. Um, so there's Brevard, Volusion, and Flagler in our DMA. And, uh, and folks there are like, oh, it's only a cat one, no problem at all. And by the time we got here, we can do a tropical storm. But essentially what it did was, as Matt had mentioned, uh, dumping like 27 inches of rain uh, in southwest Florida, here it dumped between about 15 and 20. And that was enough after a very wet rainy season, like record rain during our rainy season here in central Florida, it was enough to put it over the edge. And so we saw the worst flooding in history, as far as recorded history goes. And it was very much like Harvey, where you had, uh, there were a couple of homes in Houston, a couple of neighborhoods built in the attics and Barker Reservoirs, like on which are these flood mitigation reservoirs on the northwest side of Houston. They're essentially big earthen dams and they're designed in um, unthinkable situations to essentially fill up with water, sparing downtown Houston of like raging floodwaters, which had plagued the city back at the turn of the century, the last century. Um, But what happened is that as Bill Reed had mentioned that people have forgotten what flooding is like and they dropped their flood insurance. These developers somehow got uh, permits to build subdivisions, entire subdivisions inside the borders of those earthen dams and i believe it was the attics reservoir and one of those communities that fill up with water predictably and stayed flooded for like a month and so we had the same thing happen here uh, a little town called sanford there's a community built a whole subdivision inside of the nature designed and nature designated floodplain at the st john's river in lake monroe area and uh, they were underwater for like almost two months people were literally canoeing to get the groceries and go back to their homes and So there's a lot of that and it also revealed the inequities as far as uh, the poor areas historically have been built in lowlands and it was interesting to see and tragic to see that a lot of these homes have been multi-generational so they were paid for 50 or 60 years ago and their children live in it and the children of their children live in it so they couldn't just pick up and go and and move to higher ground so they're stuck and the the circle continues because they don't often have flood insurance in fact um, my research revealed that less than 10 percent of residents in Central Florida, have flood insurance. And so a lot of the damage that happened is out of pocket. And people, it's just adding to it because now the insurance companies are up rates and all this stuff. Um, it also revealed the the normalcy bias that I first learned about during Harvey. The idea of a station flooding seemed kind of strange. And I know Matt had mentioned that you know, he warned the folks at Wink that it going to happen. They're like, sure, it will. Well, same thing happened to KHOU, where it was like, there's no way the Buffalo Bayou, which is the major... The major drainage ditch going through downtown Houston would possibly flood and then rise up and flood the station, but uh, KHU had been there for like 57 years. Uh, Dan Rather came through KHU and just gave an idea of the the hollowed history, and and now it's gone. It's just a grassy field, and so they moved it to higher ground. Uh, Fortunately, our station here in the Orlando area did not flood, um, but a lot of areas around did, so we'll talk about that. Um, And then as far as covering Ian goes, one thing I was going to hit on was the idea of uh, communication and this was something that I was inspired to talk about from from Alan Seals a while back. Hey, Alan, um, when he was uh, he was back in the day approving my NWA seal. and Thank you, by the way. Um, and he offered very great advice. And um, one of those was was being human. And that sounds kind of silly to say it like that, but the idea of sympathy and compassion, and it's one thing that separates us from, for instance, the future of artificial intelligence and the idea yeah. of getting bad news from a computer voice versus from a person so we'll talk about that and how that role played and, and sort of being there for folks and we of course had skin in the game um also having impacts our, our personal lives in our homes here but uh, for viewers to understand that we're actually like human beings on the other side um definitely helped the communication the ease of that communication uh so yeah we're gonna talk about that much more coming up <laughs> but that's the skinny of it <laughs> so I at <get> 10. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 10, I'll see you there. But that's the skinny it. So I look forward to seeing you all. And um, this is going to be an awesome, awesome conference. It's going to be fun to get back to Texas.
2: It's going to be great to have you back. It's going to be a terrific crowd. And again, compliments on the shirt. I want, I want to do that color again. We're not doing it this year, but I want to get that color back. That's a good looking shirt. Nice.
8: Everybody loves it. Whenever I go to the grocery store, I'm at Publix and they're like, oh, wow are you a meteorologist With the darker cars they ignore it i
2: don't know <laughs> <laughs> the thing i get most is 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 that really a thing you really do you guys get together and talk about this stuff it's like yeah, you think <laughs> so funny maybe but, so maybe so a lot of folks still to come here we've still got uh josh morgerman alan seals Derek herndon uh, brian mcnoldy uh, we've got a whole group i want to take you real quickly though to um uh, brian norcross who was not on the call but he did join us uh, with a recorded message so well, let's see what brian's going to talk about at the conference brian
9: Hi, everybody. I'm looking forward to seeing you soon. The title of my talk is going to be Why the Cone Overwhelms the Warning Messages and What to Do About It. Of course, this was driven by what happened in Hurricane Ian last year, but it really comes down to, I think, of what we mean when we say the forecast for the future track or the future of the hurricane. Is the forecast the dots that the National Hurricane Center puts out, or is it the cone, or is it really the watches and warnings? What, which of those is the forecast, or is it some combination? So that's what I, I want to explore, and not that I have any definitive answers, but I have uh, some ideas, as you can imagine, uh, on that subject. So look forward to seeing you all soon uh, in South Padre, and looking forward to a uh, good conference. Uh,
2: Brian Norcross for that. Looking forward to having Brian back uh, to be part of the conference once again. Brian's been a a loyal uh,
7: uh, member
2: of this community for a long time, and we appreciate what he does. And going all the way back to, to, you know, Hurricane Andrew in Florida a very long time ago. Let's stick with the theme of Brian's. Let's go to Brian McNoldy now. And and good morning, Brian. It's good to see you again. You were on our program, I don't know when it was, a few months ago, and we really learned a lot when you were with us. What what are you going to talk about this year? You've got uh, an exciting presentation, I think. Good morning. Yeah, thanks. Um, certainly appreciate
10: the the invitation. This will actually be my first time attending this conference. I don't know how that that is, but it's it is what it is. So I'm super excited. Um, so. I'm going to talk about something that's not really my work. So, I, I'm a senior research associate at the University of Miami. Um, I do um, high, res- high resolution numerical modeling. I'm doing a project on uh, hurricane hazard communication and misunderstanding. Um, but, I'm actually going to talk about the history of Atlantic tropical cyclone names and um, kind of a history of how and when they've been retired. And the reason I picked that is that it comes up every single year. I get loads of questions from, from people about that topic. So it's it's one of those like relatively lighthearted topics. Um but there will be new tidbits in it. I'm been uh, been actively scrounging around to to dig new little odds and ends up that uh no one has had the answer to yet because I've been scrounging and uh, trying to find people who know. And it's a, though so it's it's a, it's one of those, um, you know, you're talking about naming and and retired names and all that. It yeah, it's kind of been been done here and there. So, but I'm going to cover it in pretty good depth. And uh, yeah, like I said, there's a few little new pieces that I that I've been able to scrounge up. Um, so yeah I think it'll be a nice kind of big big picture look at that topic.
4: Maybe you can find out for us uh, how they came up with the name Freddy for an Indian Ocean storm. <laughs>
10: <laughs> yeah that's uh, it does seem a little bit uh out, out,
2: out of place doesn't it? Yeah. Well, that's going to be a great presentation. Look forward to that. And, and Brian, we, we appreciate you were on I mean, It's been six months ago, probably on this program. And yeah. we appreciate your insight. And uh, it was a fascinating presentation. So we're looking forward to having you yeah, for the first time. Um, yeah. and, and being part of it, so we appreciate that. If Again, everybody that's here, you're welcome to jump in again if you have questions for anybody else as we go along, because we've got so many people to talk to today. Um, Derek, are you still here anywhere, Derek? I'm looking at my yeah, screen. Yeah. There you are. Okay, we've got so many yeah, faces yeah. up here. Derek
0: Herman, <laughs> good morning. How are you, buddy? Hey, good morning. Good morning from uh, less chilly Wisconsin. It's you know, warming up here a little bit. We hit the 50s yesterday, so that's that's moving in the right direction for us. <laughs> <laughs>
2: well, you take it, right? I, I think everybody else here is a more tropical climate, probably. So you're, you're kind of the lone northerner up there, probably. Uh, yeah. Talk about what you're going to talk about. I'm looking forward to hearing what you have to say, too. It's always good.
0: Sure, yeah. So uh, I'm at the University of Wisconsin. For folks who don't know, uh, my area of expertise is satellite remote sensing of tropical cyclones. And I'm going to kind of stick with that. Um, my, my goal for this, I think, to, was to start off. Um, we lost the Verne de last year. Um, and, of course, the de technique is a, a you know very impactful method that's been used for satellite uh, intensity estimates of tropical cyclones for so long. So I think I wanted to start off with a little bit of um, a discussion about his, uh, his impact and his legacy on, on uh, tropical cyclones into kind of some of what the current methods are. So I'm really, all these talks that we're talking about here so far are all kind of at the ground level. We're going to kind of step back a little bit and look at tropical cyclones from um, the satellite perspective. And uh, I want to talk a little bit about some of the new techniques that we're developing. So kind of contrasting what Dvorak did with what's come along in uh, recent years with some of the new satellite launches, both uh, the geostationary satellites, the polar orbiting satellites, um, kind of a multi-spectral look at that, you know, microwave imagery, all of that. Um, We have some very cool new tools that are are coming online. Synthetic aperture radar is becoming very uh, useful For looking at storms and looking at those winds so we've been having this discussion heather was on a little while ago talking about sfmr and um you know the sfmr is one of the tools we use to kind of validate some of these satellite remote sensings josh who's also going to talk is also some validation for us sometimes we don't get observations in any of these tropical cyclones because we're not flying into them but we have storm chasers who provide us observations and ground truth and i can talk a little bit about how that plays a role in validating our satellite estimates, which we can then, um, you know, kind of tweak a little bit and make better from those observations. Uh, the other area that I'll probably talk about too is um, structure changes of tropical cyclones, so eyewall replacement cycles. Ian's eyewall replacement cycle was very impactful for South Florida in terms of the storm surge and the change in the storm size. Uh, I can talk a little bit about some of the tools that we use at the University of Wisconsin's uh, Sims Group to estimate when those types of structure changes will occur. Um, and how the forecasters use that information. So they, so what if you know an ERC is going to happen? What do you do with that information? How does that change your forecast in any way? Um, another thing that I'll I'll hit on as well is, you know, you can't open up a browser and look at a web page without seeing some new AI thing that's coming along. Um, well, we have some of those as well. We have some new um, machine learning-based tools to estimate uh, different aspects of tropical cyclones. So I'll talk a little bit about how the role of AI is uh, playing um, and impacting uh, the estimates of tropical cyclone intensity and uh, structure changes. And really, one of the big things we think AI could be really helpful for is changes on rapid intensity changes. So that's something that's very key for the forecast agencies, both the National Hurricane Center and, of course, the, the other global warning uh, agencies, understanding when a tropical cyclone is going to undergo these changes in intensity that are rapid. And so I'll talk a little bit about some of the AI tools that we're, um, we're developing for that work.
2: I don't know how we're going to cram all this stuff into two and a half days.
7: <laughs>
2: <laughs> yep. and you're going to get all that into your presentation. Um, uh, it's going to be great. And the only thing I can guarantee is it'll be warmer here when you get here than it is in Wisconsin. Yes. You know, yes. Be happier I'm looking around. forward to that. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Good. Um, we appreciate Derek. We appreciate you coming down. And, and you know, one of the big things that happens every year at this conference is Dr. Klotzbach he issues his forecast. We're going to hear from him in just a minute because uh, he's not with us on the call today. Uh, we've got a message from him, so we'll get to that in a second. Before we get there, though, I want to go to uh, John Dawson. John, I see you over there waiting patiently in your corner. Uh, good morning and welcome to the program and talk about uh, uh, what you're planning for NTWC this year.
11: Yeah, I'm excited to, to get back and to hear everybody talk, and I uh, have an opportunity to say a few things myself. And um, uh, Alex is uh, sort of entitled, uh, I noticed on the schedule, you know, Preparing the Public uh, is uh, what uh, the title is. And um, I think it's just an opportunity uh, for me to get in front of a few folks and say a few things that I've heard from the public, of course, and a part of that preparation. And my focus will be the segment Uh, that I do in our uh, on-air, which is called the Hurricane Gear Test, Um, and it's a fun segment, uh, but also I think it's pretty useful and and pretty informative um, in which I take a specific item um, that would be used for hurricane preparedness in some way, and then I kind of give it a review, and then I give it a rating uh, at the end uh, on my hurricane kit priority scale, Uh, with it a cat four or does it a cat five as far as um, how useful it would be as as part of somebody's uh, hurricane preparedness plans. And so it gives me the opportunity to remind people of the very basic things, but then even just the idea of people know they need food and water, but sometimes the actual practicality of that, how do I actually have that food and water, and what would work for a family versus someone who's uh, just maybe taking care of themselves only. And so getting a chance to discuss some of that, explore some of that. And then, of course, just present some maybe non-traditional ideas uh, that can also be out there uh, and and sort of uh, look at those. So I'll bring a few things. It'll be a little show and tell. Uh, that's always fun. Uh, and also, again, just sort of discuss some of those things that uh, that I've gotten feedback, you know, with uh, when you post kind of stuff online, you get to read a lot of feedback and kind of hear um, about that. So that's, that's pretty much what I'm going to do. Uh, again, talk about uh, my, my segment specifically, the Hurricane Gear Test, and again, sort of incorporate that with a little bit of, of just trying to get you know, the public to stop for a minute and think about preparedness and, and what that might look like for their lives.
2: I think that's good because one of the good things about this conference, you guys that have been here know that that good ideas are always shared and always stolen, uh, borrowed. Because uh, <laughs> you know, you know, they said there's no so, original like, ideas, but but that's a good one, you know. And and the good thing about this is not only you present, but then we sit in the hospitality suite afterwards and talk about what worked about it, what didn't, and we all improve on what we're doing. I think, John, I think that's an important part of it. Sure. So, well, we appreciate it. Looking forward to it very, very much. Um, let's go to Dr. Phil real quick. After Dr. Phil, we'll have, uh, we've got Alan Seals, we've got Josh Morterman. Uh We'll get to you guys in a second. But let's go to what Dr. Phil uh, sent to us because, of course, we all wait for his forecast. And with uh, uh, the El Nino, La Nina situation changing, I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens. But let's hear what Dr. Phil has to say. And this morning, we have Phil Klotz back with us. You know,
1: Phil's always the highlight of the conference. We always look forward to what he's going to say and what we've got coming. But, you know, there's a lot of things happening this time around. Phil, what, what can you tease us with?
12: Yeah, well, thanks so much, Alex. And thanks so much for having me down. I'm looking forward to hopefully seeing lots of you in person for the uh, 2023 National Tropical Weather Conference. Um, let's see. We'll start at the beginning of the slide deck. And we will um, go from here. But yeah, just to kind of outline um, a few of the thoughts that we have. And then obviously we'll be releasing the forecast live from the National Tropical Weather Conference on April 13th or Thursday at 10 a.m. Uh, Central Time. So certainly invite you to uh, tune in then. Uh, I know we'll be streaming live uh, if you cannot attend in person. Uh, but just to kind of highlight a few of the things that we're really focusing on when we do these seasonal hurricane forecasts, Um, Our group at CSU, founded by Dr. Bill Gray, has been doing these. This is our 40th year of doing seasonal hurricane predictions, so we've been in this business for a while, and one of the big things that we look at every year when it comes to seasonal hurricane prediction are the sea surface temperatures, and the reason why we look at ocean temperatures is because they tend to have a lot of persistence from day to day, from week to week, from month to month. And on long-term time scales, the ocean tends to drive the atmospheric circulation. And obviously the ocean and atmosphere both combine to make it such that you can either get or do not get hurricanes and especially strong hurricanes. Um, so here is the current sea surface temperature anomaly pattern and here when we refer to anomalies, we're talking about differences from the long-term average. So in this plot, reds indicate warmer than normal water and blues indicate colder than normal water. Um, And now we're popping on a couple of rectangles. That blue rectangle highlights the Eastern and Central Equatorial Tropical Pacific. And if you've been following along in the last few years, in general, the waters there have been cold. We've had a La Nina that's generally been present For about the last three years, um, a few weeks ago, NOAA declared that La Nina event is over. Um, Right now, we have what's called neutral conditions, which means neither El Nino nor La Nina. But you can see there is some warm water in the eastern equatorial Pacific, potentially leading us to think we might get an El Nino this summer and fall. Um, another player, though, obviously, when it comes to hurricanes in the Atlantic is what's going on in the Atlantic Ocean. That red rectangle highlights what's known as the main development region. That is, as you would expect from the name, where most of the hurricanes form and intensify in the Atlantic. And right now, the waters there are also running warmer than normal. You also will note, obviously, very warm waters in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, That doesn't typically correlate with seasonal hurricane activity, but just something to note. And then also, you'll see a lot of warmth in the subtropical eastern Atlantic. And that can play a role, and I'll talk a little more about that in a minute. But I wanted to start by briefly outlining um, El Nino versus La Nina. And so, you know, this is obviously in the tropical Pacific, and we're focused on hurricanes thousands of miles away. But but these um, large scale climate phenomena does impact hurricanes in the Atlantic significantly. When you have El Niño conditions in the tr- eastern and central tropical Pacific, that, is con- um, con- that occurs when you have warmer than normal waters in that region. Alternatively, La Niña is basically the opposite. You have colder than normal waters in the eastern and central equatorial tropical Pacific. However, um, you know, obviously the question is, why would something going on in the tropical Pacific Ocean impact hurricanes in the Atlantic Ocean thousands of miles away? And through research with Dr. Bill Gray, who founded the seasonal forecast and others did, they found that it was through changes in what's known as vertical wind shear. Vertical wind shear is a change in wind direction and speed with height in the atmosphere. So in the Atlantic Ocean, your winds near the ocean's surface blow out of the east. Your winds higher up in the atmosphere say 20-30,000 feet blow out of the west. So if we think about this in a vertical cross section we have shear. Low level winds blowing one direction, upper level winds blowing another direction. In an El Niño you tend to get slightly stronger lower level winds, so winds out of the east, but much stronger upper level westerly winds tends to really ramp up your vertical wind shear and that's detrimental for hurricane formation and intensification. Um, because too much shear tends to tilt the hurricane circulation and you're less likely to get the pressure fall that you need to get the um, wind acceleration that is associated with hurricanes. Also when you have a lot of shear that tends to bring in a lot of dry air which squelches the thunderstorms that are the building blocks of the hurricanes. So NOAA put out their outlook for, um, probabilistic outlook for El Nino. And so here the black arrow highlights August through October, the peak three months of the Atlantic hurricane season, about 90% of your hurricane activity occurs during these three months. And if we look here, we can see a little over 60% chance of El Nino for August through October. Note that's not 100%. There's certainly still a reasonably high probability for neutral conditions, which is again, neither El Nino nor La Nina. The odds of La Nina obviously are very, very small, for this hurricane season. However, if we have neutral conditions and the Atlantic is warm, you can end up with a very, very busy season. So whether we get to El Nino or not is critical and that'll be one of the things we'll be looking at very, very closely in the next few weeks as we prepare um, our first seasonal hurricane outlook. Uh, Here's the current model suite. So the model predictions for El Nino versus La Nina. And so you can see none of the models are calling for La Nina, um, as you would expect given the NOAA's probabilities. Um, There are some calling for neutral, while a lot are calling for El Nino. And again, here that black arrow highlights August through October. Now, probably one of the best climate models is what's known as the European Center for Medium-Range Weather Forecasts, or ECMWF model. And this model runs a variety of basically an ensemble, which is basically you take the observed conditions, you tweak them slightly to kind of uh, um, include the kind of uncertainty in those observations, and those very small um errors grow with time and that kind of gives you an idea basically the spread of solutions and so this model in general is calling pretty aggressively calling for an El Nino. However the European Center model has tended to be relatively aggressive at El Nino over from what's been observed the last few years. So just because the European Center model is calling for El Nino doesn't mean it's going to happen. There's a lot of uncertainty with Um, El Nino versus La Nina predictions um, during the spring months. So that's something to keep in mind when you're looking at these types of predictions. Um, I did want to draw your attention to what's going on in the Atlantic Ocean as well. Um, As I mentioned before, the Gulf of Mexico is obviously very warm. However, you also see a lot of warmth in the Eastern and Central Tropical and North or Subtropical Atlantic. And especially in the Subtropical Atlantic, I think that's an area we're going to be monitoring very, very closely. Uh, The winds blowing across the Atlantic have been quite weak the last few weeks. And if you have weaker winds blowing across the ocean, that tends to mean less mixing and churning up of the ocean surface, which tends to lead to a warming ocean. So we see these warm anomalies across most of the subtropical and tropical Atlantic. Now, if we look historically at the correlations between um, sea surface temperatures during the month of March and Atlantic accumulated cyclone energy, which is an integrated metric accounting for storm frequency, intensity, and duration, you see fairly robust correlations off of the coast of Spain um, down all the way off to the coast of Morocco. And so there's some question, you know, why would something going on in the subtropical Atlantic? be important and basically the way that this works is that when you have warm waters in the subtropical Atlantic that tends to be associated with lower pressures. That means you have a weaker um, high pressure area near the Azores and if you have a weaker high pressure area that tends to be associated with weaker winds. Blowing across the tropical Atlantic for the next several months. And those weaker winds mean less mixing and churning up of the tropical Atlantic, which leads to warming of the tropical Atlantic. And obviously, hurricanes feed off of warm ocean water. So the warmer the ocean in general, the busier the Atlantic hurricane season. So that's something we're going to certainly be very closely watching, especially if we don't get a robust El Nino event. And that's certainly something we're going to be monitoring very, very closely here um, in the next few weeks. Um, Just to highlight one other thing, here's a forecast of sea surface temperature anomalies from the European center model uh, for July through September, uh, which is as far out as they currently go. So just to kind of draw your attention again, we do see a pretty robust El Nino. If the El Nino were this warm, likely regardless of how warm the Atlantic was, the Atlantic season would be quieter because we have a pretty strong El Nino. However, if the El Nino is not as strong as predicted or if it just ends up being neutral, and the Atlantic ends up being half a degree Celsius to one degree Celsius warmer than normal. We could potentially be seeing quite a busy season. So I know it sounds like a lot of hedging, but there is a lot of uncertainty. We're still in March. You know, we still even have a few weeks to go till our first outlook. And then, you know, our outlooks, we do update them over the course of the season, because as we get closer to the peak of the season, our forecasts show more skill. There's just less uncertainty in how the atmosphere ocean system is going to behave. Um, And again, the highlight, we'll be putting out our first seasonal forecast live from the National Tropical Weather Conference on the 13th of April. We'll then update it on the 1st of June. out a final or another update on the 6th of july and a final update on the 3rd of august and again even though the 3rd of august is two months into the hurricane season about 95 percent of your major hurricane activity occurs after that date it gives us one last shot to kind of fine-tune the forecast or to um really change our forecast if we really realize we really messed up until then it's one last shot at a mulligan um, so with that, um, I'll try to uh, uh, discuss anything more with Alex, and uh, hopefully we'll get to see some of you in person and the rest of you online for the uh, first seasonal forecast on the 13th of April. So thank you.
1: Thank you there, Phil. Wow. I mean, that's uh, that's some big thinking about it. And I guess the big thing is uh, the El Nino thing. If that thing yeah. really pops up with the European side of it, uh, we could be seeing something really different out there than what we've seen over the last few years.
12: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a fair bet to say it's certainly not going to be like the last three years when we really had these very pronounced La Nina conditions. Um, 2020 was obviously an extremely busy year. 2021 2021 was above normal. Last year actually ended up pretty much near normal for most metrics, even though we had La Nina. We had a... um, some strong shear that likely was driven more by mid-latitude influences, especially during the early part of the season. Um, I think I came on and was talking about why the heck August was so quiet, you know. Um, and then September came around, and obviously September was a very busy month, uh, most notable for the two major hurricanes that hit, which both formed in September, Fiona, and then obviously Hurricane Ian, which I know we're going to talk about um, extensively um, when we're down at the National Tropical Weather Conference. Yeah, let's go
2: ahead and let them through. All right, yeah. Yeah. The real Dr. Phil, Dr. Phil Klossbach, cramming more to five minutes than most of us can present in an hour and a half. So thank you, Dr. Phil. We really look forward to your presentation again this year. You know, Dr. Phil, and then back to Dr. Gray, been issuing the seasonal forecast at the National Tropical Weather Conference for a long time, and and we appreciate that and uh, look forward to seeing Dr. Phil in place
3: once again. Alan Seals with us today. Good morning, Alan. Good to see you, buddy. Good morning. Thanks for having me. And as uh, my disclaimer, I've only been up like an hour and 15 minutes based on my normal work schedule. But I'm excited. (laughs) <laughs> We're glad to have you here, and we'll
2: forgive anything. we got to forgive this whole group for something, I'm sure. So it's good to have you. What are you going to talk about this year? We're so glad to have you coming down to the conference again.
3: Yeah, it's been a while since I've been there, and my focus is going to be on communication. We, we have a lot of technology, a lot of science that helps us as, let's see, I'm sharing my screen right here. It helps us as scientists understand what's going on with tropical weather and forecast it. And we all know the forecasts are way better than they used to be. However, time after time, storm after storm, people say, I didn't expect that. So I'm focusing on how we deliver information. And even though it's geared toward weather broadcasters, it also goes to emergency managers, it goes to the National Hurricane Center's uh, Center. It's all about messaging and communication. So my, my presentation has two parts. It's about seeing what we see and hearing what we hear. And a lot of us as weather geeks, we are. our brains work a little differently than other people. So sometimes something that makes so much sense to us makes no sense to other folks, including the words we use, the graphics we use. So I did a couple of things. This was one of the benefits of COVID. I had a little more extra time. I didn't go out and do as many school visits. So amongst my weather team at my station, We had conversations like on this graphic. It's a common style graphic you'll see in TV weather forecasts. But there's a lot of information here. And most of us know exactly where to put our eye to find what we need. And we know how to decipher what's important and what's not important. And we know what the cone means and what it doesn't mean. But this was just one example where I did a a mini focus group just asking ordinary people, what does this mean to you? So I'm not going to give away the answers. But then I did another focus group with six different people, uh, people I know, both young and old, teenagers up to retirees. And I showed them these four commonly used weather graphics. And I asked the same questions. What does this mean? What does this tell you? And the answers will surprise you because As meteorologists, we would say, how could you possibly make that by looking at this? But it is uh, interesting how people process information. So that's the visual part of what we do. Now with our new technology, what's interesting, scary, and fun and funny is, for example, at my station, we have uh, auto-generated captioning, closed captioning, and even with human captioning, where someone's listening to you and trying to type what you're saying, what they type rarely matches what you're saying, because of homonyms, for example. Uh, this was a, a phrase I typed in, I have Adobe Premiere, where I edit video, and Premiere now will caption your text. It's basically speech-to-text. And I spoke that phrase, morning Virga, the derecho arrived, it put in the derecho. So. For people who are trying to get information, looking at TV but not listening to it, and they're reading the captioning, they have no clue what's going on there. The other thing I did, randomly I chose uh, five weather broadcasters off of YouTube. I downloaded their segments. I took the captioning that YouTube generates, the auto generated captioning of the words that were spoken, and I did a bunch of things with them. First of all, I laid out the sound waves and just looked at them. And what's really cool here is a lot of us, if someone says, hey, you said that wrong. He said, no, it didn't, it sounded right to my ear. But when you look at the technical amplitude and the, the wave of your uh, audio files, you can see things that you won't hear just by the way your brain processes information. So you can hear when you have a click in your tongue, you can see how few pauses most of us have when we're delivering information. And one of the most important things I did with the uh, data, I generated a speech rate. Uh, and the average speech rate, as I was looking online, the average speech rate is about 150 words per minute. Let's see. Oops. Let's get back here. But the, uh, no surprise, a lot of weather broadcasters are way over 150 words per minute. And we know there's a point where that's not effective, even though we think that we got it all out there, but the average person can't process it. So those are just some of the cool things that I'm going to talk about in my presentation. This is this is groundbreaking stuff.
2: I, I just love the work that you're doing, the work that you've done in the past, and all about messaging and how important that message is. Um, and I'm excited to hear the answers to those questions I, i'm guessing you were surprised by some you have to have been surprised by some of the things you heard
3: oh yeah. oh the responses from the public way surprised and and a little disappointed because these were my nephews my cousins people i know <laughs> who i thought would be a little more um, weather savvy just because they associate with me but they're human and it really was something to see how people interpret those graphics which we take it for granted that people understand it. But based on my research, there are very few graphics that they really understand. Yeah. Um, and
4: you were giving them, by the way, you were doing that, you were giving them a, lo, a, a fairly large amount of time to look at it. When you guys show them on the air, it's, it's in rapid succession. And I do the same thing with my relatives and friends. They have no idea what you guys are talking about.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And actually, now that you mention that, I may have to calculate. And, and I have the data. I could calculate how long a graphic was was up. So that's, I may add that.
2: Wow. Wow. Terrific stuff. Can't wait. Can't wait. And look forward to seeing Alan back here on South Padre in just a couple of weeks. Thank you. We appreciate your time. Um, did the Josh Morgan in just a second before we do that? Julie's here with us now. And uh, Julie, thank you for joining us from wherever you are. I don't know where in the world you are today. Good morning. You're muted though, I think.
13: Good morning. Go. Yeah, Sorry. Try to get the mute button off. I'm in Albuquerque, so about as far away from hurricanes as I could get. Um, But uh, Happy to join you all this morning. So I'm going to save my video for my presentation because it's houses being blown apart, which is always fun to see. Um, So I'll be focused because my background is being the CEO of the Insurance Institute of Business and Home Safety. I'll be focusing on what building science can teach us about resilience to tropical storms. Um, both new and existing properties, why we're still so vulnerable in 2023. You'd think after the the number of storms we've had making landfall in recent years that we'd be doing a better job of putting the pieces of communities back together in more resilient ways. And in some places we are, and in some places you know, disaster amnesia sets in, and the farther in time and space you get away from the storm, the fewer people actually want to change things. And we still have to fight against You know, the the mentality that I just want what I had the way I had it. I want the boardwalk back. I want the dunes back. I want everything back the way it was, which is not the best way to think about things going forward. Um, So we'll talk about building science and what it has taught us about how structures come apart um, due to the forces of wind and rain and surge and what we can do to keep them together better, again, looking at both new and existing structures. So beyond building codes... And really into some voluntary things that some of which cost very little to do and have a tremendous impact on on how a building will survive the next storm.
2: Thank you there's so much to learn. I think you're going to be a popular interview amongst our broadcast meteorologists too, as they prepare their hurricane shows because you've got a lot to tell us. I really believe you do.
13: I think so. We've, we've made some great discoveries at IBHS since we opened the lab in 2010, and I think there's more to come. But it's really nice to see those findings being activated in the real world by building manufacturers and developers and, and uh, insurance companies and policyholders. There's now people, there's actually a market for resilience, which we've built from scratch, and I think it is growing uh, up and down you know, from Texas to Maine and then pushing further inland as well. So it's very encouraging. And you guys have such an important role to play in getting this message out to the public. I cannot overstate how important it is that you guys carry some of these messages to your audiences because you're just you're you're so credible and you and people are so tuned in at the right time to hear these types of things that will make them safer going forward.
2: For those who have not been to this conference, you, you know, we, we, we just, you know, try to educate the broadcasters, educate ourselves. And, and the rest of you here are the ones who are doing that for us. And then we try to take that to the public. So we appreciate that. Julie, thank you so much for jumping in today. We really appreciate it. Um, Josh is next. And, and before I introduce Josh, I do have one announcement to make about the conference. And that's that, um, Client's Revenge has been new and improved, and we've doubled the supply so for those who know what i'm talking about you'll be excited about that for those who don't you'll find out when you get here all right josh morgan josh you've been chasing and chasing and chasing and chasing you've been all around the world um i'm anxious we're all anxious to hear uh, about your 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 travels from the last year good morning josh
14: thanks tim wow Yeah. i was thinking um i was looking back i think this might be my 10th i think this is my 10th national national tropical weather conference which is like that's mind-blowing and actually i love my favorite conference it has a has a special place in my heart because actually this is the first conference i was ever invited to speak at so uh so i'm kind of you know it was like the first time i'd ever gotten an invitation to speak anywhere and i was like oh my god so i appreciate that and uh it's nice to be coming back I i really enjoy this conference every year i really missed it during the uh during the pandemic Um, So you guys, I guess most of you probably know me. I hunt hurricanes, chase them on the ground for ground truth. Uh, Most of my work is actually outside the U.S. I I looked at actually all my past chases and only about a third of them were actually within the United States. And uh, so I'm going to be talking about that, about sort of the sport of chasing hurricanes internationally and it really is a different sport it's like if you're a tennis player it's like going from clay courts to grass i mean it's just a different a different sport completely so many different challenges just you do it a completely different way Uh, but for me it's also despite it being harder it's also the most i think the big thrill that i get now out of chasing you know i think when i was younger i was just an adrenaline junkie now my big thing is is getting ground truth you know uh collecting data in remote locations as a hurricane is coming ashore and maybe, you know, maybe a developing nation, maybe in a place where there aren't any weather stations and collecting data that otherwise wouldn't exist, you know, to give scientists sort of that, that that, that missing puzzle piece as they try to assess afterward what happened. So, and um, and along those lines, this year I'm not going to talk about Ian because so many people are going to talk about Ian. There's going to be a lot of discussion about Ian. I'm going to be talking. I'm going to be focused mostly on one of my uh, international chases, Hurricane Roslyn down in Mexico, which was meteorologically just a fascinating hurricane, Um, probably the smallest hurricane I've ever been in, and also extremely violent. I went right through the eye. The whole thing lasted one hour. It was the craziest thing I've ever been in. It was meteorologically fascinating. The data. Really interesting. It was also the most dangerous one I was in. <laughs> Very nearly uh, injured in this one. So that's what I'll be focusing on in the broader context of talking about hunting hurricanes around the world.
2: The only person I know that can put hurricane and sport in the same sentence. So.
4: <laughs> so, so, Josh, are you going to give us an update on the on the progress of building your, your
14: new home in, in, uh, in coastal Mississippi? Yes I actually I will I will give a small update on that yeah for those of you who um you know who, who might not know I'm building a house in Bay St. Louis Mississippi which of course is ground zero for some of the biggest. Hurricane catastrophes in American history: Katrina, most recently, but also Hurricane Camille back in 1969. The eye of Camille, when it had estimated winds of 150 knots, passed right over base, right over downtown base, St. Louis. So um, I'm actually building. You know, I'm I'm very interested to hear uh uh, Jules's discussion because I am, you know, building with resilience in mind. I told the builder, I said, "Hey." There are a lot of eyes on this house. <laughs> this roof has to stay on because it's not going to look good for me or for you. <laughs> There's going to be a reporter at this house the day after the next big hurricane, It better look good.
2: <laughs> so, uh, so, so, Julie, what, what's your best advice for Josh building a house in Bay St. Louis? What do you, what do you have for him?
13: Oh God, I hope it's elevation. I was going to say elevate, 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 um, but also, you know, just that continuous load path, making sure that the roof is tied to the walls, the walls are tied to each other and to the foundation and that everything is impact resistant. That is uh, something you can see through. Yeah. Yeah, those are
14: those are definitely some of the some of the sort of principles that I'm applying. And elevation was number one, you know. And for for coastal Mississippi, it's on relatively high ground. Um, not not what we call high ground here in LA where I am now, but for coastal Mississippi, it's on relatively high ground, and it will be raised several feet off the ground. It'll actually be the highest house in the neighborhood. My builder thinks I'm being this neurotic weirdo. He's like, "Why do you have to make it so much higher than every other house?" And I'm like, "Because I know about this stuff. That's why." So. So in, in Galveston
13: when I hit the fortified houses we had there were 23 feet up and the storm surge was with the waves was 22 feet um, and as I will say in my presentation the locals used to mockingly refer to them as the bird houses because they were up so high and then after the storm they
14: were just the houses because there was <laughs> nothing else left around them yeah yeah, we have a lot of those birdhouses in, or what you call birdhouses in Bay St. Louis. They're actually half the town north of the Highway 90 is super low. There's no elevation in that part of town. All the houses are really high. I'm in Old Town, the kind of historical district, which actually is the part of Bay St. Louis that has a little elevation. So you don't have houses like that in my neighborhood, but they're all raised a few feet, you know, just off the ground. That's like typical. Interesting.
2: Interesting. Josh, do you and Austin run into each other often when you're out on, on storm chases?
14: You know, I don't run into anyone usually. I kind of, you know, I'm sort of like, <laughs> I'm like hunting dog with eye on the ball. I don't think, Austin, we ever, have we run into each other in the field ever? I feel like we see each other at the conferences all the we time. We see each
7: other. Yeah, we see each other at the conference. The conference visiting.
14: Yeah. yeah. I think one, one year we even talked about me being your cameraman. That's <laughs> right. We did talk. That's right. That was a discussion. That was cool. cool. a It was like a pre-pandemic discussion. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. We can discuss
2: that in the hospitality suite over a client's revenge. <laughs> <laughs> Opportunity to say, "Hey, the floor is open." If anybody West to ask anybody else a question, we're we're over time, obviously. But um, you know, broadcasters, researchers, whatever you want, um, throw something in if you if you got. Just don't all talk at once. We'd love to hear from somebody. Questions for anybody else?
4: Well, uh, Tim or Alex, if it, uh, if you could kind of go over what the what the uh, the social type events might be uh, 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 down on the island this year, and whether it's diff- anything new or different from what we've done in the past?
2: Sure, absolutely. Um, you know, it, it's it's a similar product. They're doing a couple of things differently this year. You know, on, on Wednesday when you get here, we've got the uh, Wednesday evening, we've got the welcome reception, which is going to be a lot of fun, great music, and just a chance for everybody to visit. The hospitality suite will be open. It has a new name this year. It's not just called the NTWC Hospitality Suite. It's called the – you hear this coming – the Millibar. Um, <laughs> <laughs> groans, groans, groans. Uh, and that'll be open every evening. Um, the Thursday dine-around, we're adding something different to that. You know, we all go out to different restaurants on Thursday night to eat. We take everybody out. Um, this year, we're adding, uh, re- replacing a couple of restaurants with a Port Isabel Lighthouse pub crawl. Um, and you'll visit four different uh, uh, restaurants bars in port isabel around the lighthouse um that's gonna be interesting i think it's gonna be a lot of fun there's some new places over there which i think will be fun that'll be i think it's going to be limited to 20 people so the first 20 who sign up for that but there's also some great restaurants as always and there's been some changes and some newbies on uh, saturday morning for those who are sticking around we're doing a boat tour into the port of brownsville Uh, It's free for anybody who wants to go um you get a, a relatively decent look at spacex um again they're talking about launching right now super heavy most powerful rocket ever built on the planet um, as a classic Elon Musk date 420. Um, and uh, <laughs> so is what it is. So they'll be in serious preparations by the time we get to the conference they already are um and you'll be able to see that on that boat ride um you'll be within about you know four or five miles but it's a big facility so you can't miss that uh and then and then the the boat ride will go all the way to the port of brownsville you'll see the shipwrecking yard where there's a bunch of old military ships that are being taken apart and 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 stuff like that then you get a bus ride back you only have to ride one way on the boat um, so a lot of lot of lot of fun stuff um, on the outside of just the important meetings. Uh, again, the student conference this year, which is new, and I think that's going to be a a really cool thing. Again, about this year, about seventy five high school students are coming in, and if it works, we're going to expand that in in the years to come to open it up to a lot more students from across the area and and let them hear from from you guys, the experts, and maybe get you know maybe spark some interest in somebody. So that's going to be cool. It's going to be cool. Thanks for asking, Bill. Good question.
4: Mm-hmm. So, yeah, uh, is it true that the original thought on the the uh, port of brownsville tour was going to name it return to gilligan's island
2: (laughs) (laughs) we've got that written down here yeah 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 (laughs) but to me the coolest thing about that tour besides seeing the port of the port is is sponsoring that but it's going to be you know we're not taking a spacex tour like we did last year um because they're getting so close to launch you can't get close really i mean you can but you never know what you can be able to see because of the launch date that's approaching, but you'll be able to see it from the water. And if you take a good camera, you get some great pictures, um, on a regular day. And if, if anybody rents a car, you can drive almost right up to it. Now, those who went on the tour last year, you can get from, you know, hundred yards from the rocket, which is really pretty cool. Um, so, and that's, that's available. That on the seventh, You have to do that on your own. If you want to, it's really cool. Really cool. So how, how many of you guys that are on this call have never been to the conference? Has everybody been here? I've never done. Okay, Brian, you mentioned you have Heather. You haven't, right? So, what, Heather? What are you looking forward to about this? Besides the
5: besides the
1: which is (laughs)
2: beer.
5: I'm looking forward to just being with you know a group that's more than just research scientists. That's usually what I'm around. So, getting to interact more with the broadcast side and um, you know other people chasing from the ground. You know, when I'm always up in the air is going to be exciting. Go cool. and Brian, what about you? Yeah, uh, I, I mean, I, I know
10: quite a few people already um, from you know other conferences and things like that. Uh, but there's certainly a, a pretty good crowd here who I uh, only know online, so it would be nice to finally meet in person. Um, and yes, yeah, it is kind of a different um, type of conference for me, and it's one that I very much am looking forward to.
2: On the broadcasters, I think the big thing broadcast wise is that, that we get to meet all you guys and, and visit with you guys. <laughs> and it's, and it's, and we, I, I joke a lot about the hospitality suite, the, the, the Miller Bar, but really that's where all the good conversations happen, right? You guys have the presentations, then we just sit and visit and, and, and talk. And that's where all, I think half the learning is done there, right? of yeah. well, the broadcasters chime in uh, I, yeah, I, vouch, I vouch for that one
8: of the one of the best members I have of uh, Dr. dr. Gray was uh, having one of those bar style chats on Cable Beach during the last Bahamas conference and I think it was 09 and um, we talked for 20 minutes he and, and a younger dr. Phil and uh, it was it was a, a very interesting exchange and, and I learned a lot but um, and from the broadcaster point of view we really appreciate you guys coming as well you know from the academia standpoint um Brian as well as NHC and NOAA. And it's also just great to, um, what's the term, press flesh when you shake hands? I don't know, <laughs> FaceTime. Um, especially post-pandemic. I personally appreciate it much more just getting to, to meet people in person because we'll um, often talk with you a little bit later on in the season for better or worse in, in double boxes. I did it with Jamie Rome over at NHC many a time as Ian came up and and we appreciate you guys you know offering that opportunity for us as well because it really helps the viewers um, not just hear from us, but also from other experts that are just like, you know, the source of these warnings and what it really all means.
2: And to me, it's the time of year I want to see Josh and I want to see Austin. I don't want to see you guys in August. (laughs) I really don't. Don't take that personally, but I really don't. (laughs) But I want you in our market, you know, chasing something uh, in your sport
14: it's a good um it's a good mix of people i mean definitely you know i mean i mean it's like you got the you know got the scientists broadcast people some chasers thrown in there a couple of ex-directors of the national hurricane center i mean it's uh it's it's quite it's a motley crew actually which is which is what makes it fun i mean it's you know that's not like all the same types like i'll admit when i go to the conferences whatever it's all scientists I a little out of place so uh so this is cool, it's iconic. Like kind of everyone, I feel like, sort of belongs at this one.
7: But you really are uh, working every hurricane as a scientist with your ground truth and your, your millibar changes, the barometric pressure readings that you're getting. is really, a,
14: that's scientific, I think. Well, thank you. I'm scientist and scientist hunting dog, I say. Yeah. Can <laughs> <So. laughs> we call you Dr.
8: Josh when you get your honorary PhD? <laughs> Can you imagine?
2: So. <laughs> it's gonna be—it's gonna be a race of universities to, to, to award that first one. Uh-huh. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, Alan, we're, good, we're looking forward to having you back again. It's been a couple of years, but but you know you always present good information, so we're excited about that too. It has
3: been, and for me, um, it, it's all—it's brain food. It's little things to start that little thing where it's like, oh, I forgot about that, or oh, I need to look into that, or I need to incorporate that. So. That aside from just the personal networking and catching up with people as people, that's that's the plus.
2: Matt, are you going to be glad to be getting out of Florida for a couple of days and just get away from the blue tarps for a little while?
6: Yeah, I was going to say uh, thank you so much for the invite. Uh, this will be my my first one, and kind of like everybody's been saying, it's so nice to, to meet who we kind of have known on Twitter or social media and actually meet them in person. Yes, by the way, my shirt's different. I'm getting ready for work. <laughs> Um, and it'll just be, it'll be so nice to just meet everybody in person. We'll share some stories. Uh, Unfortunately, I have a a family commitment on that Friday, so I'm only going to be there for about, uh, I think under 48 hours, but in that 48 hours, it's going to be amazing time and it's going to be a, you know, nice to catch up with everybody. Well,
2: we're looking forward to it. Looking forward to having you here for the first time. You get your very first shirt, see, just like, just like Brooks. Uh, Uh, I can't wait. (laughs) Right. <laughs> it's a secret what a couple of the shirts going to be. John, coming down, uh, looking forward to having you down here as well.
11: Uh, yeah, always enjoy uh, the visit for sure. And um, I will, I'll be ready. And Sometimes you feel uh, like uh, last year was the first year I had an opportunity to present, to talk. Um, uh, and so you get that little bit of that preaching to the choir kind of feeling, um, because you kind of realize who you're talking to and things, but, but that kind of goes away and and you're just kind of realizing that, yeah, you're, we're, we're all just here kind of exchanging some ideas and, and getting some, uh, some um, some new information and uh when you know people have sat and thought a little bit longer than i have about some stuff it's good to it's good to hear that and then um i think the word that you used Tim, was um borrowing ideas uh stealing <laughs> ideas i'm not sure exactly but uh we can all work together uh, to present information to try to keep people uh, safe in the future
2: terrific and, and Derek. Um, I, I, I've checked, and we can extend your stay if the cold weather moves into Wisconsin while you're here. Not a problem.
0: <laughs> I, I, I w- may not decline that. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm sandwiching this between the uh, that uh, Tropic Signus workshop. And I'm going to see some family as well up uh, up in the Fort Worth area while I'm there afterwards. So I'll have to to bug out a little sooner than I'd want to. I won't be there on the Saturday, but I'm looking really forward to seeing people in person. Um, some of you have corresponded with over the years, but have never actually met. Um, I'm also really looking forward to this communications aspect. Um, you know, I, my primary area is remote sensing and such, but I, mm-hmm. I really do appreciate the, the communication side because that's where the rubber meets the road, right? That's where the, the people get the message. And, I, you know, I'm always corresponding with my family and friends during storms and uh, I definitely, you know, looking for ways to get better at that <laughs> because, you know, as, as we're going to see, you know, sometimes what we're saying doesn't doesn't always get through because of the words we're using and, and the way we present it so. I'm looking forward to that part.
2: Great stuff. Great stuff. Bill, jump back in because you've been you've been quiet up there today. Great conversation. But, uh, Bill, any final thoughts on what we're doing today, what we're going to be doing in two weeks?
4: Oh, it's, yeah, it's got me. Uh, it, I think this is a great way to get everybody uh, in the flow of anticipation and looking forward to going to the meeting and all. And, uh, and, and I knew this would run long when you planned it, but I still <laughs> I still screwed up and I have an appointment that I actually have to leave four or five minutes ago. So I'm going to be <laughs> checking out right now. We'll see all you guys down on South Padre.
2: Thank you, Bill. Bill Bill has been such an important part of what this program has become from the very beginning. And, Bill, thank you for your continued support. We really appreciate that because it wouldn't be here without you. So we appreciate it. All right, I think we're going to wrap it up. We could talk all day, but let's save that for two weeks. If you're watching online at home, wherever there's still time to register go to hurricanecenterlive.com register now get your airplane stuff taken care of and get yourself in here because it's going to be a terrific conference everybody on this screen everybody you've seen today is going to be there and it's a chance to just you know learn in presentations and then just sit down and talk over lunch at the end and really have a good time so ladies and gentlemen thank you for your time today we sincerely appreciate it all right that's it Thanks to our sponsors, USAA, South Padre Island, and everybody else who's involved. Welcome, Plylocks, back to the mold. Uh, The Port of Brownsville, Whataburger, all part of the program this year. We appreciate that. We will see you all live on South Padre Island in just a couple of weeks. Have a great day. See ya.